Welcome to One Sweet Dream, a podcast where we explore the dream that was and is the Beatles. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me. Speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. When the broken-hearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. For though they may be parted... Hello and welcome to One Sweet Dream. I'm your host, Diane Erickson, and my guest for this episode is author and writer Rob Sheffield. Rob writes about music, TV, and pop culture, and is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone magazine. He is also the author of multiple books, including Dreaming the Beatles, The Love Story of One Band and the Whole World. Since Rob often writes and comments about the Beatles, I thought it would be fascinating to have him on the podcast to discuss all things Beatles, but especially Peter Jackson's film, Get Back, which had just come out when we spoke which was last year in December, 2021. So without further delay, let's jump into my conversation with the delightful Rob Sheffield.
Rob Sheffield. I'm so happy uh, to have you here today. Well, thank you so much. I saw you last week on Morning Joe. Yeah. How was that? Well, that was fun. I was talking about Get Back, which is a like fascinating thing. I mean, it's amazing to have so much of this after craving it for so long. Yeah. I enjoyed your, your piece on the breakup last year. I did something called the Breakup Series. Have you had the opportunity to listen to any of it? Oh, yes. Okay, good. So then if I reference it, you'll know what I'm talking about. But, you know, we had the point of view that, that things were not as they seem. Things were different than the traditional narrative. And so it was really fun to see Joe Scarborough and John Hellman going, oh my God, they loved each other. It wasn't what we thought. The Beatles were all good friends. I thought that was such a joy to watch. Yeah, it's a friendship that has been uh, very much viewed through the filter of the uh, the original 1970 movie, um, which and it's funny that even though hardly anybody has actually seen that movie yeah. at this point, it's it's funny that a movie that hardly anybody has actually seen, nonetheless, is still so uh, still so intense in terms of forming the, the the myths of how people hear this this phase in the Beatles story. Well, the film <laughs> is interesting because it just has clips that are pieced together. And it doesn't tell the story that I think everybody believes it tells because it doesn't really tell a story. It's just like random clips put together. I think it was after the Lennon Remembers interview, after the interviews of the early 70s, and the fact that it came out when it came out after Paul had supposedly quit the Beatles, that we read into so much of what's in that film. Well, sir, I interviewed Peter Jackson last year when he mm -hmm. was putting this together, back when he still thought that it was going to be a, a two-hour movie yeah. um, and was, as you can imagine, kind of uh, losing his mind at the idea of, of what to leave out and you know, leaving stuff out of the eight-hour version was, yeah. was clearly a chore. But as he said, you know, when this came out, you know, in May 1970, it was so colored by the, the mm -hmm. news of, of the time and that very much was the filter through which people viewed it at the time. And even just the premiere of the movie with none of the Beatles showing up yeah. and all the, the the poor Apple personnel standing on the red carpet looking around <laughs> nervously to see if any of their bosses were going to show yeah, up. Yeah. And being worried for days afterwards that they'd be getting in trouble for going to the premiere. That kind of environment in which the movie was received oh, yeah. has influenced how people have not just viewed this period, but how people have heard this music. And it's That's right. funny how far outside the narrative it stands. I mean, it's funny to think that that people have often thought of the rooftop concert as as the last time the Beatles played, which, you know, as as we all know, they were back in the studio just a few weeks later making yeah. Abbey Road a fairly popular and successful album. <laughs> it wasn't even a few weeks. I think it was a few days later. Like it, it, it just continued. There's so much to reconsider about this period. And uh, I'm thrilled as somebody who's who's been trying to promote a new take that we've got some major help in, in telling this story. Um, I take it from your write-ups that you're a big fan of Get Back. Yes, I love Get Back. What are your, your initial thoughts? I just, uh, it, it's... It's so much, you can drop into any 10 minute stretch of it at random and find uh, treasures in terms of Beatle interaction that, you know, that we could feast on for years. I feel like we're just beginning to watch this movie, really. I've, I've been through it three times and mm -hmm. I'm still finding things that, 
you know, are in the mix just because it's uh, it's an awful lot to consume. But it's uh, it's definitely uh, up close and just full of moments, musical and otherwise. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I had a really hard time watching it the first time because I listened to a lot of the, the Niagara tapes and looked at a lot of the footage. So, you know, seeing his version of it was like it, it, there was a constant calibration in my mind about what was cut and what was in and, you know, how things looked now that we've got the imagery versus what I had interpreted based on just the audio. But I found like I could only do it in 10 minute takes because there's so much going on that I would like watch 10 minutes of it and be like, okay, got to think this through. So it took me days to watch, you know, all three, which should have taken me eight hours. Did you have a a favorite part between the one, two and three? I have to say episode two is uh, to me, that's like one of the great Beatle comedy moments, especially the last two hours of it when they move to Apple and we just really see them frolic for a bit. They're on their home turf. They're, they're showing off. They're showing off for each other. They're showing off for all the strangers in the room. And, but mostly like they're showing off for each other because yeah. they're the Beatles and that's what they do. Oh my and God. they're, uh, that th- th- they're so funny and together in, in, in that episode particularly. Uh, so I love the whole thing, but so many of my favorite moments are, are in uh, episode two. It's, it's really the, the comedy caper of the three. <laughs> Well, I actually prefer one and three. I, I like I found two hard, but I can see what you mean. Two has some incredibly important moments and you get a sense of what they would be like on their own turf, whereas one was very um, outside of their comfort. So, but I, I, I love the look of one and I loved seeing them coming. And I, I found like there were so many incredible moments of togetherness and chemistry in one, which I, I think a lot of people see more in two, but I, I loved one and I loved three. You know, like three, they've got momentum, they're happy, they're together. It's kind of like there really is three tonalities to the different episodes. Yeah, each one has a very different personality. Yeah. The first time I looked at it, I, I loved it. I was so excited. You know, I was telling everybody to go watch it. And then, then I woke up the next day thinking, what about all those things that he cut? And, you know, this is not the truth. This is Peter Jackson's take. I know he says at the beginning that this is, you know, as close as they could get. But this is this is the truth according to Peter Jackson in the way that he sees it, which is his prerogative when he's making a movie. You know, no, he cut almost every single line we used. So, you know, there there's some stuff that I'm like, oh, I thought all those things were important. So it's his point of view. I think it's a film. Of course, yes. So you've written... A couple of articles, 24 Reasons We'll Keep Watching the Beatles Get Back Forever for Rolling Stone, as well as Get Back, Meet the Beatles Once Again, courtesy of the most emotional Fab Four doc ever, um, as well as you've written a book on the Beatles, um, Dreaming the Beatles. So in the 24 Reasons We'll Keep Watching the Beatles, you start with um, Maureen. I love Maureen. I am Maureen. You know, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I am Maureen. And, and that's something I loved about seeing her on the roof. You know, she's... She's the only person there on the roof who's really excited to see this band and who's always been excited to see this band. And so uh, I am Maureen. And, and when Paul says, thanks, Mo. That's oh, it's so cute. One of my very favorite Beatle moments ever. Oh, me too. Because Maureen met Ringo at the cavern. So she goes all the way back with them. I interviewed um, Chris O'Dell. And uh, Chris said that she loved Maureen. She got to know Maureen very well. That was one of her best friends. And uh, 
you know, she's just said that Maureen was so salt of the earth, like just such a cool woman. And she's kind of portrayed as a, a little simpler than the other Beatles in the way that Ringo is. But there's something like so deeply wise about both of them. Plus, she looks cool. I mean, her style is totally on point. I love the dark hair, dark line. It's a good look. Yeah, I love that moment too where Paul goes, thanks, Mo. Because you can tell he wants the feedback from the audience. That's the essence of him. Also, you know, it's all men up on the roof. It's, it's mostly men in the film crew. That's yeah. not why Paul McCartney got into music. <laughs> he never in his life cared about playing music for men. No, he didn't. Never has. Never no. has. And, you know, the, when he got together with John to, you know, from the very beginning of him doing this, yeah. playing music for a, a, a roof full of men is, is not what he had in mind. <laughs> and so, you know, you see, and it's the film crew, and you see a lot of people who are standing around, and they're all men, and they're nervous because yeah. they're on the clock. Yeah. They're there for work. They're doing a job. They don't want to screw up. Yeah. And nobody's really excited to be there. Mo really stands out that way. Um, and it... It's, it's something about that moment is that, you know, put Paul in any situation and, and he will find like the girl fan. But that's, yeah, 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 that's yeah. why he does what he does. And he will and be playing to them. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Uh, great part of every live Paul McCartney show is when he does Hey Jude and, and he does the sort of corny old showbiz thing of like, all right, now <laughs> the men sing along. Now, now the ladies sing along. And it's funny because, wow, he does not care about the men singing when, when he does the <laughs> na-na-na's at the end of Hey Jude. He has never wanted to listen to male voices in, in his entire catalog as a songwriter. There are no Paul McCartney songs where he really cares what a man has to say, where he really listens to a man. Other he than just, his father, he, his father. Other than his father, exactly, yeah. exactly, his father. But then you listen to the part of na-na-na where it's just the women singing na-na-na-na and the joy in his face is genuine. Even if he says those lines verbatim every night, he means it every night. He's Paul McCartney and the essence of Paul McCartney is that the whole reason he makes music is to uh, communicate back and forth, call and response, feedback with female joy. Yeah, and it's interesting about how when Linda comes in, he <laughs> he's clearly lit up, you know, in the first part when she comes and sits and is kind of his primary audience. I mean, he's totally peacocking for her. Peacocking is exactly right. And you, you could see, you know, this is, you know, he's normally showing off. He's Paul McCartney, but it, it's, it's just really different when she's sitting there and he's like, yes, I'm going to sing another day. And oh, this is a little thing I've been working on, the long and winding <laughs> road. And it's, it's just, it's so sweet. And there's something just so quintessentially McCartney-esque about it. He is, he's absolutely showing off for her and he, he doesn't care who knows. So you talk about the deference uh, to women, the band's respect and deference for Yoko, Linda and Maureen is striking in comparison with other male musicians circa 1969. You can't exactly imagine Mick Jagger saying, Linda's a cameraman. There's this, a, a Yoko smile I can't get out of my head. Ringo slips her a stick of gum. She breaks it in half, hands a piece to John. Her smile with Ringo is just a moment in that time that was lost until now, sitting in a vault for 52 years. When they reminisce about their trip to India, that footage could be the next Peter Jackson doc itself. Let's hope. Um, <laughs> uh, Paul has fond words for Cynthia Lennon, Jane Asher, and Patty Harrison. Um, 
And I, I got that too. Like when Paul's talking about the women in India, you kind of get the sense like that's their family. Like that's their, their crew. You know, it's not as much as the guys do form this inner sanctum, the women around them are accepted and important. I absolutely loved it when Paul called Linda a cameraman because I mean, you know, ignoring the fact that it's a sexist term, um, you know, it is 1969. But the fact that he introduces her as an equal to Michael Lindsay Hogg, like she's a photographer, you know, I thought that was very respectful. And um, I like the fact that when they're working with Yoko, you know, John, Paul and Ringo get behind Yoko. And, and actually they sound really good. So I loved your point about that. Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing about both Yoko and Linda. People forget how famous they were independently um, before they associated with, with Paul and John. I mean, when, when Paul says Linda's a cameraman, Linda is one of the biggest photographers in the rock world. She's taken uh, iconic photos of the Rolling Stones, Aretha Franklin, B.B. King, The Grateful Dead, in some cases, the most famous photos of these artists. And, you know, she, she already has her sort of own independent celebrity uh, it, it, it's, it's funny, she's, you know, she's, she's a bigger deal in her world than Michael Lindsay Hogg is in his world. Right, right, um, right. You would never know from the way that Linda carries herself, you know, in terms of arrogance. I love the fact that she just gets to her business. Another thing she and Yoko have in common, they're both, they're both New Yorkers mm -hmm. and they're both uh, really brash and used to speaking their minds. You can tell that they're both holding back a bit around the Beatles, but you could tell that they're both very used to having an opinion and very used to chiming in with it. I mean, this wasn't new to me, but seeing Linda in the circle after the meeting, um, it was interesting how Linda was just like, you know, these were the, the dynamics that were going on. You can tell she and Paul are discussing this a lot behind the scenes. And it's not like Linda's just deferring to like, oh, I don't know what's going on. She has a point of view. You know, when she said that she didn't think that John actually believed the things that Yoko was saying when they when they met in a group afterwards. That's a, that's a very interesting point. Yeah. I mean, the difference between the two, like you mentioned this in your article, is that <laughs> clearly um, Paul and Linda are Beatles fans. And she mentions they are watching Help. And I think Paul talks about the fact that they listen to Sgt. Pepper. And so from that, you kind of get the sense that Paul and Linda are going home and looking through these things. I don't think they're just watching it for fun. I think that they are watching <laughs> it, <laughs> maybe. But um, I think that they are watching it to figure out how the Beatles can proceed, you know, and they're kind of looking back, what did we do? How could we do something interesting and different? That's a major difference between what John has at home versus what Paul has at home, because Paul lives with a Beatles fan and, and John doesn't. You know, Yoko, frankly, would probably prefer John to be doing other things, although I don't think she's necessarily suggesting that he not do the Beatles. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, you're, you're an expert who is, uh, uh, analyzed this phase of the Beatles' evolution in yeah. extraordinary detail, um, and, uh, and yet something that comes across in the film, just seeing their faces, is uh, Linda's very at ease with being a Beatle fan. I love just the way, casual way she brings up watching Help. I feel very validated as a Help fan. Uh, it's also very funny to see that you know the Beatles are very used to by now. Uh, Yoko and Linda expressing opinions, and, and you can see that the film guys are not necessarily used to uh, women expressing opinions. And the very uh, strange moment where Michael Lindsay Hogg wants to compete with her about which one is a bigger Beatles fan uh, <laughs> shows his, 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 his 
customary uh, failure to read the room. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) He wins the prize for all time worst ability to read a room. It's just like, I, you know, there's one scene, sorry, this is just an aside, but there's one scene where they're talking about an audience and George is clearly saying like, well, let's just do it in front of a small group. And to me listening, it's like, these guys are worried about playing for an audience. You know, they haven't played for a while. I thought it was very clear that George is like, well, just like we could do it like a group, like just a small club. And Michael Lindsay Hogg is like, you should do it to the world. It should be for everyone. You know, and it's like, stop stressing them out, Michael. You want them to do this, don't you? Like he just, he was so bad about figuring out what they needed to hear. Absolutely. And they'd they answered his questions. You know, Paul, the very first day, told him that they were not interested in foreign travel because Ringo didn't want to do that. There's a beautiful moment just of, of Beatle brotherhood and loyalty right there. You know, yes. for Paul, that settles the question. Ringo doesn't want to do it. They tried traveling with Ringo. They went to India last year. Ringo, <laughs> Ringo was a good sport about the whole thing. Ringo didn't like it. So they're not going to do that to him again. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's very touching how Paul is just, you know, very inflexible on this point. And I love the way he puts it to Michael Lindsay Hogg. It just, uh, uh, I think you'll find we're not going abroad, actually. <laughs> Such a beautifully Paul way to put it. But, you know, the, also, Paul answered the question and gave you a very clear idea of what he wants. Paul McCartney is not the sort of wishy-washy person who's not sure about what he wants. If he has a clear idea of what he wants, he's he's going to tell you. And he does tell Michael Lindsay Hogg he wants to stage it like around the Beatles, which, yes. you know, was a fantastic, would have been a fantastic way to stage it. And he's just not listening to Paul telling him very clearly what, what Paul wants. Well, he's not listening to anything because, and the, the funny thing is like watching it the third time, I just watched how much they actually humor him. And I think it's partly out of respect because they are fairly respectful. They have hired him. They're not going to necessarily listen to him, but they give him space to be constantly pitching his ideas, which I did appreciate. On a professional level, they weren't like, just, oh, shut it, you know, Michael. We've already told you. There was none of that. There's that scene where, you know, Paul is talking about wanting to be arrested, which which actually was very prescient, you know, and, and ultimately totally. Paul does get his way. Paul always gets what he wants. And he, <laughs> wa- he wanted to get arrested somewhere. And Michael Lindsay Hogg is like, well, as much fun as it would be to watch you guys get beaten up, you know, or maybe we could go to Manila, which was funny. But then he starts to um, pitch the hospitals for not really sick kids, just, you know, kids. Oh my like- gosh, what a thing to say. <laughs> Unbelievable. Oh but the funny thing was watching John Lennon. Like John Lennon kind of looks a little bit incredulous and you can see slowly he gets a <laughs> smile a very soft smile when he's just like this is nuts but he starts to think it's funny and it's so cute you know and eventually he comments uh no an orphanage uh is probably not what we're yes. gonna do yeah it's it's like you no doubt like i've, I've thought of so many other um beetle albums where i wish we had this kind of you know up close and personal footage but that stuff it made me think what what you say specifically about them them being willing to humor uh him it makes me think of like during the rubber soul sessions which were you know almost exactly three years earlier yeah and when norman smith the engineer pitched them a song because (laughs) he was a budding songwriter and they they were you know crunch time deadline for the album and they actually 
gathered around the piano and listened while Norman Smith played his song for them. And there's something so beautiful about that. You know, we don't know what their faces looked like, but it it, it says so much about the Beatles' good humor. It does. And, and patience and just, you know, just their good manners, just that, that they were willing to humor Norman while he sits around the piano and, and actually pitches the Beatles a song for their I album. I mean, that was a bold, bold move on Norman's <laughs> part. But I think you're right. Like we see that even with Magic Alex, like these guys are decent guys, you know? And, and like you said, they've got good manners and there's something very sweet about them. You know, Magic Alex, they do kind of trust him, but they do kind of not trust him, but they're willing to give him a chance. Like sometimes you think, oh, they're so naive. And sometimes, you know, Klein, they are very naive, but sometimes with him, I just sort of felt like they had good humor. He could do something cool, so they were willing to, to give him a chance. There is a certain amount of respect. You know, they, they've hired him to do this. And I think in the past, you know, when they were doing the earlier videos, they probably respected Michael's knowledge. Yeah, but, but I, I, again, you could see this, this is a band that really needed a manager. It's so sad to see over and over again, Michael Lindsay Hogg is having these conversations with, with them sometimes interrupting them in the middle of a song um, <laughs> to have these conversations that he should be having with people who are making decisions. You know, he's Paul McCartney. He shouldn't have to be managing the Beatles in his spare time. Well, he's got a full plate. That's a major thing. Like, that's probably one of the great takeaways from this is how on their own they were. I mean, George Martin, for me, was the only real adult presence. I guess there was um, Dennis O'Dell that was kind of the producer like these are two older adults people in the mix but they needed somebody to take the decision out of Paul's hand because you know as Paula said they are a square and you know it won't work Lennon McCartney is already so dominant that Paul can't also be the manager it just that just throws everything off and it made me feel badly that they didn't have somebody taking care of the production details of you know, being the one to talk to each of them and get their point of view instead of Paul having to do that. Because you hear early on, he's saying like, I want to do it. But as the, the film goes through, he stops giving his point of view because he's also trying to take into account people's needs, you know, and that puts him in such a difficult position. So true. This is my personal pet peeve is this notion that uh, John abdicated his role of leadership, you know, to Paul and I, I think it's a co-leadership. You can see the interactions between John and Paul, at least as a band. They really, you know, they're, they're co-leaders in this and the strength of the band is from this bond between them. And, and I think at first Paul's struggling because Paul and John have a conversation and you can see that John has agreed to do this. Like he's agreed to the film and Paul's kind of like, well, could you step up and like get behind me? And he cut that, which was too bad because it's kind of like Paul's reminding John, you said you were in, now could you please show that you're in? George and Ringo to be actually fairly good sports at first. You know, I kind of would have had the sense that they were going to show up and be like, oh God, Paul's project. But I thought they were really game. Yeah, definitely good sports. Um, you can see the toll it takes on George, of course, as, as you know, you've studied in detail. Um, 
Ringo, Ringo's a good sport throughout. I don't know if Ringo didn't want to be there. Like, I think Ringo loved it. You know, Ringo was game. I think Ringo wanted to play and wanted to go on the roof. And I think the dynamics weren't quite right for Georgia's needs at first, but I was surprised how willing and active George was when he first came in. Yes, definitely willing and active um, and super reasonable and has yeah. thought about the, the diplomatic way to present his changing position at, in the music world, his changing sense of himself and his, his mission as a musician. And the way he presents this really plainly to the others who just don't have the ears to hear it. And you, you could see that, you know, George comes in with a lot of optimism. You could see it in his face. Yes, man. that's what I mean. He comes in with optimism. I think he thinks now it's yeah. going to be a bit different. White Album was a bit better for me. Now I'm even stronger. Yes, and, and he, you know, he explains it, it, it just, it's really beautiful how diplomatic he is um, under, you know, a certain amount of exasperation would be certainly understandable, but you know, he's thought about how he wants to present these new songs to the to the group. He's thought about how he wants to present himself as a musician. He's thought about, you know, the other musicians that he's met and played with and gotten to know and how his strengths really stand out and you know what strengths he doesn't have and what strengths he does have. Yeah, yeah. And it and He's really optimistic about, and you know, he should be optimistic because it's very reasonable for them to see it that way. And yet they, they just don't have ears to hear it from George at that moment. I don't know if they would have ever had the ears to hear it from George. You know, the Lennon-McCartney partnership had been going for 12 years by this point. I, I don't know. Although, again, this is uh, having watched it for the third time. I saw the, the Paul-George relationship a little bit differently the third time, where I thought Paul was more responsive to George than I did the first couple of times. You know, he does come and listen to George's music. He's like a magnet. You know, he's somebody else said this, but I thought it was a wonderful point. Like, Paul's like a magnet to music. Like, if there's a song and it's good, he's going to come and just, like, physically, be, like, be hovering. And he does that. Every time George brings in, he does get close to George and listens the problem is, is that he still prioritizes anything John does over, um, over George. And George is hot at that time. You know, George is writing a song a night. But, you know, here's something I was thinking is that, um, you know, it's unfortunate that they didn't quite have the ears for George. But on the other hand, to cut Paul some slack, I think it was really critical for Paul to support John. You know, there's a lot of additional context that plays into what's going on in this, this whole movie that we don't necessarily know. But we know that Michael Lindsay Hogg refers to um, the wound, that's there's a wound between John and Paul. So something has happened between John and Paul. And John says, yes, he wants to fix it. But there's something that's going on between them. And John is going home and taking heroin at night. So as much as John you know, develops and gets more and more full of life and stronger as the film goes, he he is still going home and doing heroin. So I understand Paul's loyalty to John to try and get John back to feeling good, you know, whatever he had to do. Yeah. And but also because Paul is so much more demonstrative emotionally than John at this point. So I think uh, that, 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 as you said, people place so much of the, the, the burden on Paul's relationship with, with George rather than, you know, rather than John and, you know, John's, John's refusal to play on George's songs even on Abbey Road, you know, and that 
that there is a certain uh, sense of, of George wanting to be accepted by John in a, in a way that John wasn't able to accept him as uh, as a musical partner. Yeah, well, that's interesting because I have seen people are saying that, oh, well, you know, John was actually much better than Paul was with George. But I think that Paul and George have their own relationship that, you know, because I'd like to do some episodes on Paul and George. And so I was really watching them and I think they've got more of a relationship than people recognize. You know, George is actually very supportive of like, get back. He wants to get back to be their single. He suggests every little thing you know, he, he asked Paul for help on his song. He comes with ideas for the long and winding road. And Paul does actually show up. Like, in reality, Paul delivers. He shows up for George's songs and does a great job on them. So I, I was asking a friend of mine, why do you think that George and Paul have these issues that John doesn't? In their point of view, they were kind of a casual Beatles fan, and they were like, John's just so much easier going. Like, yeah, he, he probably won't show up for George, but he's fun. He's easygoing. He's supportive of George doing his own album. You know, he's just not going to be that that involved. Whereas Paul actually does really engaged. And then unfortunately, they have different approaches. So there's a bit of a spark. But if you look at like Long and Winding Road, George is still fully engaged in trying to arrange that song. So it's not like George stops trying. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's beautiful moment in the film where where George is doing Old Brown Shoe and Paul gets behind the drums and you just see George's face light up. Yes, and he, oh, totally. And, 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 and just an unbelievably sort of boyish smile. He loves that Paul is getting behind the drums to yes. play this song. And you, know, and, and you just have a sense of that as the kind of connection with Paul that he was able to make. It was a really beautiful moment. I saw that too. Like, because Paul went and got behind the drums, it was like an acceptance. Like, this is a cool song, you know? Because the minute Paul engages, it's like, okay, he's into this, you know? And, and actually, uh, the flip side of that is that when Paul is, you know, that magical moment when, when Paul gets from sort of tuning into whatever pitch Paul McCartney hears when he's in flow state, when, you know, when he's trying to come up with their next song and he, he stumbles upon the, the beginnings of Get Back, it's like, George starts to encourage him. He's like, yeah, yeah, that's good musically, yeah. And then the two of them, George and Ringo, go from yawning to all of a sudden engaging. And that gives Paul the encouragement he needs to like really fully embrace it. I mean, Paul probably would have gone there anyways, but it gave like a boost. I love that, yeah. I, I, I love that line that you quoted, it's good musically. Yeah, what what a funny thing to say. It's like a piece of it's like that's such a grudging sort of compliment. It's it's like well, yes, it's a song. Like of course it's good music, but it, it, as you can see, I mean, the the transformation in in George and Ringo in that moment is just like uh, just so unbelievable to witness that you know George is yawning in Paul's face and very ostentatiously yawning. He's not only not making an effort to hide it. He's really like, Paul, do we really have to go through this right now? You yeah. know, like I haven't had my tea yet. Yeah. Um, you know, Ringo is rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. And you could just see the moment where George suddenly hears it. And he's like, yes, this is a song. He starts to play. And suddenly, like the yawn is a, 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 a thousand miles away. Ringo starts doing those hand claps. It's just an un oh, yeah. unbelievable, incredible moment. It was. And then John comes in, you know, late, and he's kind of like, wait, what, what did I just miss? You can see he kind of looks sheepish when he picks up his guitar, like, well, okay, what, what is this song now? I mean, like, yeah. you, you can't leave 
these three alone <laughs> for like 10 minutes, John. Snooze, you lose. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, when George is making a great point that I thought was so lovely about like, we should love each other's songs like and, and see each other's songs as almost our own. And I think the, the problem was like, Paul is kind of like, yeah. And I think the problem is Paul and John see each other's songs that way. Like that exists between them. I think at least until 1968, John and Paul saw each other's songs like this. I think there was some kind of fracture where they start, especially John, starts to take ownership of his songs at that point. Um, but you can still see there's such a team at that point. But I thought I loved George's point. And George does, like to me, from my perspective, I see George loving the songs, Paul's songs, John's songs. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, George... George came to be a member of the band. He's been hanging out with the band, you know, in Woodstock, and you know, and and he sees that brotherhood as 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 it was at that point in the band's career, and you know, he he, he wants the Beatles to be a little bit more like that, and mm -hmm. and he's very he's very engaged with 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 their songs and wants very much to make them good. He's he's very much conscious of himself as a as a musician and as a craftsman. Yeah, the thing is, is that you see in this that the Beatles are a family, you know, they just, they have all the family dynamics. And that's a bit of the problem with getting together when you're 14, 15 and 16, you know, or 15 and 16, it's really hard to break that. It's like their roles are so formed and that's, you know, what some of these other bands don't have where they actually met when they were a little bit older. And I don't think that Lennon and McCartney could have ever broken Lennon McCartney. Like part of what makes the Beatles so special is the axis of Lennon McCartney in combination with Ringo and um, George. And I'm not saying that any one of them is more important. It's just like that was part of the original chemistry of the Beatles. And so that's probably an underlying issue that would have remained. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, like you said, you know, just getting together that young, they were just going to carry that history with them in, in ways that sort of inhibited them as well as inspired them. Um, I wanted to go back to a point that, that's kind of relevant to this, that when we were talking about like the tone deafness of um, Michael, we can return to this topic many, many times because, you know, it's so prevalent throughout the film, but I actually found Michael Lindsay Hogg sweet and like I did, I thought he was tone deaf, but he really did love the Beatles and he was trying to do a good job for them. He just kind of couldn't because he was so tone deaf and he d came up with this terrible edit but again I kind of don't blame him because apparently he had to do re-edits according you know there's too many cooks in the kitchen which is how you end up with a terrible terrible film um, but anyways you know there's that scene after George leaves where Neil says well Lennon and McCartney you try dealing that with that for a few months you know you've got Lennon and McCartney on one side and George Martin is agreeing saying that yes they are a, a team and then George is entirely on his own can you imagine how impossible that would have been because no matter how much John and Paul are disagreeing they're still Lennon and McCartney no matter how much they fought or they had issues there's still that bond between them and it was interesting to me that Michael Lindsay Hogg was like, well, yeah, but they're not really, you know, writing together anymore. And then George Martin says, yes, but nevertheless, they're still a team. 
And then Michael Lindsay Hogg stupidly says, he's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I know on, for publishing and on paper. And it's like, Michael, are you not even watching what you are recording here? Because you see John and Paul um, crafting all the songs together. You know, they bring Give Me Some Truth. They clearly have talked about I've Got a Feeling. Absolutely. They're, you know, they're working together, but there's the sense that they're working together during the day and then they're going to their separate homes and watching TV. And they're, you know, they're, they're distracted by their adult lives that are separate, you know, it's different from when they were touring as, as Paul says, you know, when he's talking about the fact that, you know, that they're not together in hotels all the time anymore, but uh, that physical proximity that they're a team and that they're committed to being a team, but the routine of being thrown together all the time, uh, that was a huge part of being the team together. And, and they haven't really found a way to replace that. Yeah, I think that's one of the central tensions. You know, you mention in your article the, the very sweet and important little clip where Paul is playing Strawberry Fields Forever. And I love what you wrote about it, that that is really touching to John. And from what we know about John, you know, John's, John's songs are so personal to him. And so when, when Paul or John play each other's songs, it's incredibly important. And so you highlighted the, the, the fact that John is looking down and I talked to somebody else and he, he said, well, I was looking for John to react, but he didn't. And I was like, oh, I think John was reacting. I think he was like glued to listening because they're communicating. It's really kind of like an amazing moment. John is practically crawling into his guitar to try to hide from Paul. He's facing away. Um, he desperately doesn't want Paul to see his face. He doesn't want anyone to see his face. Um, even Yoko, who in that scene, she, very beautifully, she's picking through but it's clearly an empty green bag. Like, oh, I'm looking for something in this bag. No, she's not looking for anything in this bag. There's nothing in the bag. But you know, she's she's definitely like, you know, she's like John. You're 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 just not going to hide behind me for this moment. And you can see that John, you know, very much is is you know physically cowering from this moment and and cannot look it straight on. But he is playing along and and he's hearing it and it's it's meaning a lot to him. And you know, Paul is also very putting a very McCartney-esque, there's that wonderful little piano frill, like Strawberry Fields. And it's, it's, it's he's really like engaging with this song. And, yeah. and you know, he, he knows how personal this is to John. It's it's just a beautiful moment. And, and it's really touching to see how John is just kind of overwhelmed by it. Yeah, I think that when Lennon and McCartney play each other's songs, it's a really big deal because they're speaking to each other through each other's songs, you know? Um, so the, the fact that Paul's playing this, they are communicating. But to tie this to what point we're making, I did an episode where John gives an, an interview three days after his divorce comment where he talks about their partnership getting false when they stopped traveling together. I think John kind of needs to be all in with the person that he's with, you know? Absolutely. They slither wildly as they slip away across the universe. 
kissing and caressing me. Your point about the fact that I wish we had this for some other albums uh, is a really great point because I think that it's great to see these dynamics because it challenges what we thought about this period, but I also think this may not be representative of the way they always were. As we know, every single album they did, they, they ended with this kind of deadline craziness, you know, <laughs> and that they, they kind of, they had to do it that way. They did it that way in the beginning when they had to, when they had no yeah. other choice. But, you know, even, even when they had unlimited studio time, they still always ended up crashing out the album at the last minute, like right. the night before it was due. <laughs> no matter how much time you gave them, they would always find a way to push it right up to the final minutes of the deadline. And so this is the kind of pressure that, you know, that they have, you know, willingly or, or, or just habitually, but this is the situation that they've fallen in before. And it's, it can be very exciting for them as, as it was in Rubber Soul. That's of, of all the Beatles records. That's the one that I most wish that we had a, uh, th th this level of footage just because you know very similar situation very strange to think that it was like almost exactly three years earlier and in, in, in the fall of 1965 when they are just jammed in a room just throwing any idea out there just trying to crash out an album in time for their Christmas deadline right and and you know writing writing half the songs in a week it's insane and and the quality of the songs like these guys were so in the zone it was unbelievable and I think that's probably what they're trying to do is push themselves back into the zone where they're just creating when they, they get into this state of flow and togetherness, which they do get into, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why Paul is trying to create these artificial boundaries. It's, it's something that I think has worked for them. You said that George muses about a solo album saying, I'm going to do me for a bit. He presents a sensible plan for how the band could preserve the Beatles bit, just doing their own music on the side. And John suggests they could all play on George's record. So your point here that uh, George's idea was a good one and probably probably would have been the best solution to, you know, to have preserved the Beatles structure for a few more years. Yeah, given all the other innovations they were coming up with, this is one that just, you know, it was in their fingertips and it just got away from them. You know, other bands figured out a way to do this, you know, like, uh, Right after this, you know, like the Grateful Dead just hit into a groove where they would they would all make solo albums. Everybody in the group would make solo albums and they just they'd all play on them. And, you know, they, they didn't care whether it was billed as a Jerry Garcia record or a Bob Weir record. So, you know, Bob Weir booked some studio time because he had some songs he wanted to record for a solo album. And he told the other people in the band and they said, well, I'm going to play on it. And it ended up being everybody from the band playing on the album. But it was just billed as his album and it was his songs. And. That's a solution that could have worked for the Beatles. I mean, it, it, that became kind of an ordinary thing for bands to do, you know. In in, in the '90s, the Wu Tang Clan they put out, you know, so many solo records, and it was all of them. You know, everybody in the Wu Tang Clan ended up making solo records, and it was it was the same guys like on on every record. But you know, it, it was just you know everybody had the outlet for their songs and for their vision that they needed, and the Beatles were this close to getting it, and you know, and they they. They just couldn't make that happen. Music the rest of the time. I was going to say that, like it's like George was still holding out hope that that is what it would end up being. It, it was still a good idea then. <laughs> <laughs> it was still a good idea. It's too bad. I think you know, if there hadn't been Klein, they probably could have done that. You know, because Paul didn't really mean to to quit. John, you know, once he's 
had his six months of fun with Yoko, you know, he's checked into Janov. You know, we used a, a quote from Derek saying that if Paul came back and said, I want to do it again, John would have. So I think that that conceivably would have been, you know, that would have been a great thing for them to have done if they could have worked it out. Absolutely. In which Doris gets her oats. So there is, there is a sense when I was watching it, like in the third part, Paul and John are looking at each other, like they're seated looking at each other and they're trying to work out, Paul's unhappy about something. And they're discussing, you know, what this is going to be and whether it's going to be on the roof. And, you know, Paul gets talked into going on the roof because George Martin says, well, this will be like a, a, you know, a dress rehearsal. But they're kind of going back and forth. And having watched it three times, one thing that struck me is like, what does Paul want? What I've concluded is that Paul wanted this to be really big and special. I think we wanted this project to rally them all and to gel them all again so that they'd want to tour again. I think he thought that the magic would come back. And in some ways he was right because John wants to tour after this. But I think that he wanted them all to be inspired again. And I was thinking about Paul's desire to play live at this time. It made me think after a long time thinking about this, it made me think that it might have been good for Paul McCartney to have had a sideband at that point. Because Paul actually is quoted as saying he got bored with the Beatles. And John actually remarked upon that in 1980. He said, I don't know why he didn't leave the group in 1968. I don't know, maybe he was scared. And, and I don't think Paul McCartney ever wanted, I think that was the problem. He was too, too attached to the Beatles to even imagine going out on his own at that point, but it might have been helpful for Paul to do that, you know? Yeah, and, and yet, you know, he always, he thought his songs were better with the other Beatles on them, you know, and he's, he's not necessarily wrong about that. It, it makes you wish that they could have done the sort of solution where, where, you know, they're playing on each other's songs, but for Paul that, you know, that wouldn't have been enough because he was so committed to the Beatles and and because he was so committed to his vision within the Beatles. I mean, yes, of, of the agreed. four of them, Paul is the one who, after leaving the group, immediately formed another group. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. and the whole idea of the group, you know, he, he it often seemed like he didn't particularly care who was in it. He just wanted it to be a group. Yeah. And and that's, you know, his commitment to wings all through the 70s, which, you know, at times got really comical to the point where you know, he was <laughs> doing songs by the other members of wings on his albums. And it, it, it leading to the you know, complete farce of members of Wings quitting the band because they were frustrated that Paul wasn't doing enough of their songs in, in Wings. <laughs> I know. Wings. I don't know why all of these members, it went to their head immediately. It was kind of like, dude. Unbelievable. You know? It's like you are a dude in Wings. Yes. That is the only reason anybody is listening to you. Like the fact that Paul McCartney wants to record one of your songs should be something just, you know, smile and take the compliment. And yet... They're, they're talking about how Paul is foisting his creative vision on them. It's wings. It's, yes, it's, yes. It's you should be so lucky. Exactly. Yes. And, and also a part of the Paul McCartney story that it's really funny how people forget this and, and have written this out of this story. But after he forms wings, he's not singing Beatles songs. And for the first few years of wings, he's, he's touring and refusing to do any Beatles songs at all. He, he's very much seeing it as a, as a break with the, the Beatles songs that he did. 
part of the the headline news of, of the Wings Over America tour was that he was finally doing Beatles songs live again. But it's it it goes contrary to sort of people's narrative of Paul that for years he had this new band called Wings, and not only did he insist that they were a real band, he refused to play any Beatles songs with them. That's right. I think we get the wrong idea because he has embraced the Beatles so much these days. You know, he loves talking about it. it's way too much in my opinion. I'd way prefer him to talk about Wings personally. <laughs> Not because I don't love the Beatles, because I do. It's just I'm more interested in other things when it comes to Paul McCartney, because he only tells certain stories. But anyways, that's an interesting point that Paul almost needs the community. Like there's a communal aspect that probably reflects his family. But also, you know, sometimes in the Beatles story, um, John's background is given a little bit more time or thought because John talked about it, frankly. But you know, there could be some emotional things at play too, where Paul met John right after his mother died. And he talks about that. And so maybe the band is his family, you know, that it's that the community of having a band there is more than just he loves the Beatles. It's like he needs that community of family in a way that maybe the others don't. He grew up in a bigger family. Maybe that's what he needed. Well, and that's a really brilliant point. And and also a, a family where people sat around playing music together. Yes. Which, you know, is also the kind of family that Ringo came from. Yeah. And it's interesting that the two Beatles that we think of, the ones who kept the, the team spirit going, certainly like since the, the tragic deaths of their bandmates, they're very committed to the all together now aspect of, of the, the gang image of the Beatles. But Paul and Ringo were the two who grew up in households where, you know, there were loads of people sitting around and singing songs and everybody taking a turn. Paul talks about that in the really beautiful moment where, you know, where the, the, the really, I mean, the really kind of sad moment given what Dick James was about to do to them uh, right after this was filmed. Right, right. But you know, Dick James is presenting like he's, you know, this hero who's brilliantly bought this song catalog for them. Um, very hard to watch. I'm, I'm sure it's agonizing oh, yeah. to watch for, for most of us. Um, but you see Paul looking through the songs. He's like, Carolina Moon. That was oh my, my God, that was Ron's song. Ah, I love that a, bit. I love that. And it's such a beautiful moment. And just the excitement, enthusiasm on his face. And you can see all his wariness, all his suspicion, all his, you know, his, 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 his he's like, Caroline. And, you know, for Paul, that's, you know, the platonic state of what music is, and what music should be is, you know, a house full of family and, and everybody's going around singing their parlor piece, singing their tune. And that's something that, you know, has never left him and it's never left Ringo, you know, that that stayed with Ringo for life and it stayed with Paul for life. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I love that scene. too. You know, you just see Paul's connection, like the minute it connected with his family and yeah. got a song that meant something to his family, that there was a connection there. And actually, there's something really sweet in the lyrics where he talks about growing up hearing his mother singing or whistling. And the minute he heard that, he thought, oh, she's happy. Like for him, music yeah. is happiness. And uh, and that's important. You know, for John, it's like a mode of communicate. Like he talks about that, of communication. That's why he buys into, you know, he, he's not buying into Michael Lindsay Hogg's like orphanage, but he does want to be on TV because he sees that as a self-expression and communication. Whereas so beautiful. It's, and I, I don't know about your perspective. Obviously, you've, you've, you've analyze the audio in, in, in heroic detail. But for me, it was, it was really interesting seeing his face when he did, when, when he was saying that, when he said, you know, for me, it's all about communication. That's the point of doing it. And, and his, his earnestness in that, 
I have to say that was really different seeing it in in this film than 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 hearing it just because uh, you, you can see how passionate and there was something you know really passionate and romantic and idealistic about that as well. Yeah, I agree. John always looks softer and more idealistic and sweet in this film than I imagined him because he took on a bit of an edge, you know, in the next couple of years. I mean, I don't think who he was left him, but you know, he was he was spurred on by some kind of anger in the next couple of years, but here he's he everything was softer. You know, like for example, uh, for me, the it's like we're lovers. Um, Love that exchange. I always took that as John being wry and kind of um, trolling pile. Like obviously, Paul, we're talking to each other, but he looked much more coy and shy. You know, one of the things that I noticed is that every time John's really um, self-conscious, he plays with his hair. And so, you know, when Michael Lindsay Hogg talks to him about you and Paul, it's not as easy. There's some kind of wound between you. He starts to play with his hair. When he says, it's like you and me are lovers, he starts to play with his hair. And then Paul mirrors him and plays with his hair back. You know, it's, it's very self-conscious. That, that was when we're seeing their faces really. Uh, yes, that was, that was something so sweet. And also like the way that, you know, does a double take that, you know, that he does a good job of hiding, but, you know, <laughs> Dixie, George and Ringo are like, well, that conversation just happened. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and that's not the end of it. John circles back on that. Like John hits on it. Like It's like he's got this in his mind and then now he's, he's interested in talking about it. And Paul, he kind of shuts John down, which reminds me of, did you notice in that scene where John comes in after they've done heroin? And I think John's a little bit loose-lipped. You know, when he's he's sort of entertaining the crew with Peter Sellers and Paul shuts John down a couple times there when he starts to talk about the recreational activity. And Paul's like, do we have to talk about this? Or Paul's yeah. like, do we have to talk about that in public? And then John starts quoting songs back, like, I feel happy inside, I can't hide, I can't hide. And then he talks, ask me why and I'll say I love you. Like, I think John is communicating through lyrics often. And Paul changes the subject again there. And I think that they are speaking to each other often with lyrics to remind each other of the, the connection between them. And I sort of think that John may be a little bit more attuned to some of this stuff than Paul, because Paul, when Paul kind of zeroes in, like there is a message, you know, there's a connection between all of these. And it's like, yeah, Paul, we've got, we've got, hey Jude, you know, don't let me down, and that leading to don't let me down. And and did you hear John say, don't let me down, babe, when talking to Paul? I love that. I love that. It it seems like for, I mean, and, and, and John is quick to make a joke of it. Yeah. Uh, for Paul, it's, it's, it's not a joke. You know, this is, you know, a, a journey they're on together. This is, you know, very much... Yeah, the two of us road, their long and winding road. And, and you know, it, it, for, for John, it's, you know, a defensive thing to, to treat it as a joke, but you can definitely see that, you know, for him as well as for Paul, it's, it's not a joke. Oh, I was going to say that. I don't think it's a joke for John. John drops babe, love, 
a lot more easily than Paul. I, Paul's big regret seems to be the, the fact that he couldn't he couldn't express himself as well as John or even a even a Michael Lindsay Hogg who casually drops that he loves all the Beatles to their face, you know. But I, I do think that John is putting that out there. Don't let me down, babe. It, it's kind of like I think both of us have suspected that part of that song is for Paul. You know, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I thought I had read that. Certainly, yes, yes. In the way that, like, when Paul comes in with two of us, he's always said it was about Linda, and I thought it was interesting when he comes in, two of us, the part that he brings in is probably about him and Linda, because it doesn't have that you and me bit. But then it, it, that develops, you know, through this period, he brings in this, this extra middle eight bit, and that is John and Paul, you know? Another Quarryman original. <laughs> so sweet. much more easily than they can read John. And John's reaching out to Paul. It is very apparent to me, but I don't know. I, for some reason, I, I think that people have a harder time, maybe because John was so so adamant that he didn't need the Beatles afterwards. There's a lot of um, mythology in the Beatles. And, and you can see from the two men that they're both into it. They are mirrors of each other. Yeah, I guess. It's funny that for me, and this might just be, you know, the way I'm, I'm wired personally and, and emotionally, but I see Paul as, as, uh, as, as, as more open and demonstrative. Um, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm always obsessed with Paul and Martha. You know, that's, that's one of my very favorite relationships. Oh my God, yes. And, and I, I just love how, you know, for Paul, it was very much an extension of himself to bring this very, like, large slobbery mm -hmm. cumbersome you know like getting everybody's face kind of dog with him too. Yeah. everywhere he went i you know i one of, one of one of my pet jokes is is that you know that when john got yoko it, it, it's because paul already had martha <laughs> and you know it's true paul, paul brought martha everywhere and, and something that comes up you know when they're talking about that period is that john was very uncomfortable with the way that martha would just climb up on john and lick his face and that that's something that you know and yet, you, you could see when you see photos of, especially photos where it's the three of them, John, Paul, and Martha, you see the love between John and Martha, and it's a really sweet thing. You could see that, you know, John hadn't had that kind of relationship with, with an animal, certainly not a dog. And the whole thing of letting this animal follow him around and, and drool on him and slobber on him and lick him, you could see that that's something that, you know, for Paul, that, that very much suits his personality and, and, you know, something that he incorporated into his his, his urban life. It's really strange that even before he went out on the farm, he's, he's, he's living, you know, in, in St. John's Wood and he's, you know, toting this sheepdog around town right. as, he, as he walks around. And for John, it was very sort of emotionally challenging to have this animal climbing on him. And I guess I, 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 
I definitely overfixate on the uh, Paul Martha relationship and the John Martha <laughs> hey, relationship. I'm, I'm fully supportive of that. I love the Paul Martha relationship, and don't forget Eddie too. Yeah, God, God um, bless. We love all the Beatle pets, all of them. <laughs> but there's something there's something about the way that I guess I always love the way that you know you could see like often in pictures of John where Martha is there that John is kind of terrified of this dog. You know, he's like all these other people, all these guys. We love each other, but you know, they know my sarcastic wit. They, they've, they've all been on the opposite end of it. Like these guys are all scared. Of, Martha is not scared of me and I, I can do nothing to control her. And <laughs> kind of yeah. terror on John's face. I mean, it, but. Well, I don't know. I see it differently. I think like the pictures where like there's a picture, one of my favorite pictures is Paul and John walking and John is walking Martha. I'm sure you know that photo. Yeah, where John's um, up on the sidewalk. It's so like, yes. And the picture of them when with all their, you know, in 67, where Paul and John are both like holding their child, Martha, you know, they I love, got, yes. I love that photo too. It's so cute. I don't know. Like Paul even remarks upon that in Martha, my dear, in, in the lyrics about how John became physically more demonstrative um, at that time because he saw Paul. I think that there's two things. One, Paul is used to big families and more, probably more outwardly affectionate, especially, I think it, he's allowed to be affectionate with children and, and animals. That's my point of view, is that Paul, there's a proper place. I love the fact that Paul takes him everywhere. He's conducting an orchestra. Martha's beside him. And so that's part of, you know, like we, when, when people talk about, well, isn't it strange that, you know, like that John kept bringing Yoko to rehearsals. And I said, you know, he was just, as he so often did, he was just copying Paul because Paul already said like, yes, exactly. Like I'm going to, I'm going to conduct an orchestra. You know, of course I want Martha. My there. buddy, my best yes, buddy. Exactly. Yes. And, and, you know, I, I, I think very much he taught John that that kind of emotional bond was something that could be incorporated into your daily life rather than something that was, you know, tucked away at, at your estate in Kenwood. And, so I think that there's a certain a certain thing about the Paul and Martha relationship. I mean, it certainly comes out like in the beautiful moment where he's just playing that song by himself in the studio and he's sort of like lecturing one of the crew guys about this is, you know, how you write a song at the piano. But <laughs> which in no way explained anything. I love that. Oh my gosh, I love that. And and it's 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 a beautiful moment. You could tell like the crew person is like I'm not a musician. I don't know why Paul is telling me about writing songs. I'm never going to write a song in my life. I, and I, I loved his takeaway by a piano. That yes. was hilarious. That was so great. That was so great. I hope he did. Um, but there's something about the fact that, you know, Martha, my dear was his song in that moment. But I, I guess I think of, to, to go back to your original point, I, I think of Paul as being sort of more out there and more vulnerable, certainly emotionally than, than, uh, than John, but you know, it, it's just, I guess it depends pers what your personality is like, but I guess I tend to, I, I tend to see where Paul is going emotionally. Uh, I think a lot I, of people do. I yeah, think a lot I of see. people do. His eyes are so expressive, but I see John. I think John is more out there in terms of, he's more verbal. I think John is much more verbal about what he needs and, uh, you know, and Paul can't quite communicate. You can see Paul struggles to communicate constantly, except magically through song, he can all of a sudden communicate. But I think John is better at communicating. And also, you know, again, John is going home and doing heroin. John's not happy, you know, whereas I think that 
you might look at this and think John is happy. And it's interesting. One of the quotes that we use constantly in the breakup is that Cynthia says, you need the Beatles more than they need you. And you can see John actually does better as the, the, the time goes on. He looks better. He gets more excited. I think he, it's good for him to have the Beatles around. Absolutely. You know, that's his little family. And he, he remember, there's a quote in Hunter Davies' book um, about, he, he says that, you know, I need to see the Beatles to remind myself of who I am. Like he almost, yeah. you know, he needs them. Even something like Dig a Pony. It's like, all I want is you, but everything has got to be the way you want it to. It's like, that's, again, I'm not suggesting that there's anything lustworthy there, but I mean, who, who do those lyrics apply to? You know, I sort of feel like these things are coming out unconsciously with these guys. Like, and I feel like John throughout this is re is telling Paul, this is my home. All I want is you, but everything has to be your way. Could you not, could you stop doing it your way, you know? And it's, it's kind of like they are communicating to each other. And so I, I think that John understands some of the emotional dynamics that are going on underneath the surface, maybe more than Paul. And that's my opinion based on a lot of things that John has said before and afterwards, actually. But also, you know, Paul thought about follow through in, in, in ways that John didn't. And John, John was fond of, 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 you know, demonstrative verbal impulses that he didn't necessarily follow up on. And, you know, for, for instance, you know, like saying, you know, he wanted Billy Preston to join the band, yes, you know, yes. which is a great moment. And Paul's the one who's already thinking in terms of logistics, yes. like, okay, this is what John wants today. Is, is John going to feel this way next week? And of course, as we know, you know, the Beatles made a record that summer and Billy Preston played on two songs. Yes, 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 John, yes. John was not deeply committed to having a fifth <laughs> Beatle. Oh, apart. absolutely. I completely agree with you on that. Everybody's like, well, everybody else was cool with having Billy <laughs> join. And I'm like, of course they were, because they wouldn't have had to have dealt with it. You know, like, Paul's yes. thinking eight steps ahead. That would never have worked, by the way. Never, never in a never. million and, years. And, and I've, you know, I've been kind of, it, it, it's funny, since the movie came out and everybody's like, oh, they would have stayed together if Billy Preston joined. And and um, it, I hate to be that guy, but I'm like, they did make a record a few weeks later and Billy Preston played on two songs. Right. <laughs> like, like, they definitely, if they wanted to work with him on, on an album, they certainly had an opportunity, but, you know, John, John's whims and moods, which, you know, were very much a, a, a part of driving him emotionally. Um, there was something that, you know, Paul was used to being wary of. It's a typical couple dynamic where, you know, like where they, they balance each other's extremes. Yeah. Oh, you had a point about the very cool little, uh, little duet between John and, and Billy about I want you and I have a dream. That was awesome. But that, that was actually another bit that, uh, Peter Jackson cut out is that when Paul walks in that day, John's really excited to talk to him about this dream that he had last night. He walks in and he says, he says, Hey, did you dream of me last night? And Paul's like, uh, no. And he said, Oh, I had a dream about you. It was a very strong dream. And then he says, he and Yoko both had it. And he's like, it was like, I was touching you. It was so real. 
And like uh, George, it's George or Paul say something like, well, nothing's sexy, right? And again, they're very aware of the cameras. And John goes, uh, no, 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 no. as John believes that they have this connection and telepathy. And Jackson cut a lot of John's more provocative statements like this. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a pity because, you know, you get a sense of the fact that John was reaching out more and he was so excited to tell Paul about this dream. And then that sort of led to uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I've got a dream speech and that leads into that. But I wish that would have been there because the idea that John wants to talk to him about a shared dream and something else that Peter Jackson also cut out was that Paul, when he's talking to Neil earlier, says, um, I know why John's not speaking, but we don't have the telepathy that he wants. Or, you know, he's, he, this is a paraphrase, but he's saying like, we're not there yet. And so the sense that John thinks that they can communicate, like John literally thinks in this bit that Paul was also in his dream, suggests the kind of like magic that John believes in. Yeah, it, it's, and, and, and yet, you know, it, it sounds like Paul has a very similar sense musically. Um, it's, it, it's very interesting, that conversation about the dream that he had last night. Do you know it? Yeah, well, I just know the audio. Yeah. Um, but it's, and as with so many of these things, it's different when you see their faces. Yes. But oh, uh, we didn't see it. He cut it. Yeah, I wish we, we did see it. see it. Yeah, I, I I wonder about that. Maybe we'll see it in the 18 hour. Oh, I go, I right. hope so. Oh my God, I'm <laughs> going to love the 18 hour. Oh, um, yeah, but there was a couple things like that, like in the cafeteria scene, which you flagged again as being really incredible. But that is a scene that there's like a bunch of people at the table. It's not a conversation between John and Paul. You know, it's like uh, the technology who pulls out John and Paul and they are talking to each other at this point, but Yoko's in the middle of it. He just cut Yoko out of it, you know, and he dropped an important line where, where Paul, John says that to come back, he has to get over his ego and his jealousy for Paul. And there's some stuff at play because it was cut. You know, you sort of get a different take. Like this isn't the two of them that stuck out. This is six people at a table. And Paul and John having a little side, like it's very interesting uh, how the dynamics changed after George walks out. I thought about it because right before George walks out, Paul and John are getting so close again. They've reignited their spark, which is one of the things that prompts George to walk out is like, oh God, it's this again. You know, he's like, well, why am I even here? And he walks out. And then when John comes back, they start to talk about their issues. I wonder if it's almost like that well, two things. We know that George left when Yoko spoke for John. So I think that John might be partly guilty and projecting it back onto Paul, or else it just triggered some of his own issues with Paul. Um, for him to sort of be like, yeah, actually, I kind of hate these things too, you know? What do you think? Yeah, um, I guess that's that, that's another thing where it'll be interesting to see, you know, 
to see the 18 hour mix. Um, just because it's, for me, that part is hard to read without their faces. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, we're, we're never going to get their faces on that one, but yeah. And the problem is, is they're having, as you've identified, and as we often talk about, they speak in code and half sentences half the time, you know, they start. And then John goes into this, like he talks about being at Mendips, which was also cut and they only have to speak in half lines because they're referencing things they both know about. So sometimes it's hard to read as an outsider, but uh, it's intriguing. Paul does take a step back, I felt, after that. You know, you can see him being just a little bit more, a little more careful, I thought. Honestly, maybe maybe I'm just too much of a Paul boy. Like, <laughs> like because I, I guess I think of him as, uh, you know, really like trying to follow the others and trying to read the others and trying to listen to the others. Yes. So it, I, I guess for me... It's, you know, it's interesting to see the way conversations like that influence Paul. Um, but it's, it's very interesting what you say about, about him stepping back at, at that point. I felt like he did. Other, I've talked to other people that don't read it. And actually on my second, like the first time I watched it, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. He's not very good at it, but I really think he tried <laughs> to hold himself back a little bit and give more space. And you can see John kind of blossoms with more attention and, and George looks happy and they are in their space and George Martin's there, and I think they all feel a lot safer. So maybe Paul was just relaxing because he didn't need to be driving the project so much. So it could have been that. Again, the second time I saw it, I didn't see it as much. The first time I really felt it, that a dynamic changed. But I do think that he probably was very conscious. I mean, he needs John on board to be his co-leader because the fact of the matter is Paul's driving them. You know, one yeah. of the people I've interviewed, Paul Thompson, just talks about Paul as being the engine. And he really is. And he needs John on board to drive them, you know. And so, you know, he's got to sort of give them some space. And, you know, you can see them all get a, a lot happier. And again, I don't think it's just Paul stepping back. I think it's the space. They're more comfortable there. They've got George Martin there. They've got Billy there. There's a lot of things contributing. But uh, I felt like there was a tonal shift there. So um, you, you talk about Yoko, that um, she's been maligned as an intruder at the sessions. Um, but you make the point, it's because John needs her there. So is your point of view that really she didn't impact the dynamics of the Beatles? Oh, I certainly wouldn't. I wouldn't say she didn't impact the dynamics of the Beatles. Um, she certainly did. Um, in a lot of a lot of complex ways yeah um obviously it, it you know it was simplified a lot you know in in the wake of the 1970 movie certainly um yeah but also just you know in terms in, in, in terms of way you know john primarily framed the debate in terms of you know like he talked about his lenin remembers interview um where he's you know presenting the end of the beatles as as the struggle between paul and yoko and it's that's insane but she's she certainly you know had a major impact on on the chemistry of the beatles largely just because she had a major impact upon upon john and uh and and his personality really changing quite rapidly at that point mm -hmm. i mean the thing is is that she's there because john needs her there but yoko's also there because she wants to be there i, I think that that should, should be acknowledged too 
she's not being dragged to that the, the session. She wants to be there. You can see her constantly reaching for John and making sure that she's right in there. You know, I'm sure it's reassuring to have her there. But have you ever read her um, her audio that she did in the studio in in 68? It changed my opinion about Yoko. It's not like John dragged her. She was very much a part of being there. And reading that made me realize how into John she was and how possessive of John she was. And so, you know, I think... I think on both of those, on both now of those. she wondered parts. if there was something going on between John and Paul. Right. I mean, she, <laughs> yeah, she picked up immediately the feeling. And so she gets the fact that Paul is an emotional threat. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And I think this is interesting because you can see by this point, they're trying to accept her and she's not disruptive. I do think that Jackson has cut out some of she wasn't quite as quiet as she appears. There's a little bit of a whitewash there, but it, for the large part, you know, I think for in general, she wasn't particularly disruptive or anything, except for the mind games that was probably playing on Paul. You know, there's a lot we could talk about with that. But, but, uh, but as, as, as Paul says, and, and, and it's wonderful to finally see his face when he says this moment that I know you have, you know, studied in great detail and, and, and the audio, but the great moment where, where Paul is kind of explaining to everybody he's he's sticking up for Yoko and he's saying yes you know, like everybody has to get over whatever issues you've got with Yoko you've got to get over them and it's really amazing that Paul is the one who's stepping up and saying this and I love what he says yeah they're going overboard but John always does yes and yes such a beautiful yes. way that he says that and also you could see in that moment you know he's Paul McCartney he is the romantic of the Beatles he loves a love story he's the guy who wrote here there and everywhere he's the guy who wrote and I love her this is Paul McCartney. Nobody loves a love story more than Paul McCartney. Oh, and I think John does. I think John's the bigger romantic. <laughs> just, just my opinion. But I would say there's a good competition between those two. But I do love that too, that he seems to, throughout his life, he seems to embrace the John and Yoko love story. Like, I don't think he has any problem with John and, and Yoko as a couple. Well, no, and, and also he was the one who, you know, cultivated a relationship with Cynthia, you know? Like yeah. He's the one who, you know, wrote the Beatles' biggest hit, you know, driving to see Cynthia after the divorce, which is the kind of thing that, you know, it's it's one of the many strange things about the Paul story is that, you know, that he's just like, this is his day off. He's Paul McCartney. It's 1968. <laughs> he yeah. could go literally anywhere. He could, you know, knock on the door of Buckingham Palace or, you know, he could go to Saint-Tropez <laughs> and That's right. drop in on Brigitte Bardot's, you know, yeah. like yeah. Chateau. He yeah. could, but, and and what he's doing on his day off is going over to Cynthia's house. Yeah. And this is a mind-blowing detail that he never treats like a big deal in the story. I happen to think it is a big deal in the story. Adult men, like with Paul McCartney, like his his, his wiring as an adult man is really different from a, adult men of his era, but also adult men of my era or adult, adult men of, of, of you know, the, the modern era. It's It's just really his his emotional openness and it's funny that you know i'm not at all disputing what you say about john being the romantic mm -hmm. or, or john being romantic but um there's something about paul and his connection with yoko and his connection with cynthia that is uh that for me personally individually as a beetle listener and 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 beetle fan is something that i've spent my whole life trying to figure out and i'm i'm no closer than i ever was but get back is full of moments like that 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 
seeing the Beatles interact emotionally, it, it, it's... I, what I what intrigues you, just out of curiosity? What, what are you trying to figure out? I guess I'm just trying to figure out, like, Paul McCartney's emotional openness, uh, certainly, like, in conversations with other men. But I think, and, you know, and not to, like, make it about gender or anything, but I certainly think for, uh, you know, the, the conversation... The conversations that they're having are uh, sort of unusual for male friends to have just in terms of their openness between John yeah. and Paul. Yeah. Um, both the ones that made the movie and the ones that didn't make the movie. Yeah. Um, and Agreed. But, and, and that's always there in their songs, you know? Yes. And I, you know, for me, my very first Beatles fan experience was watching the movie Help. And the very first thing in the movie is they're singing this song called Help, which is this super emotional song. Yeah. And... They're all singing it together. Paul and George are helping John tell his story. Yeah. They're singing the line before he does. And yeah. now I find, and now I find. And, you know, and even as a little boy, I was like, hmm, adult men don't have conversations like this very oh, often. Oh, yeah, true. And it's true. They don't. As I grew up, yeah, I found yeah. out we don't. Um, and I guess for me, that's one of the mysteries of the Beatles that that I'm always pondering. And, and never more than now, after watching Get Back, is just uh, the emotional intensity that all four of these boys bring to this friendship. Oh, that's that a wonderful point. Always wondering. Yeah, Ringo was interviewed. Uh, I don't know, it might have been in the 70s or something. And yeah, I think it was in the 70s. And he just said, we were very possessive of each other. You know, there was little jealousies and they were very possessive of other people coming into our group. And uh, when you watch this, men don't usually, like when you see John just run straight up to Paul and they like literally stand five inches from each other. I'm always kind of like, do you not know about personal space? Because you guys are right <laughs> in front of each other. And then they're, they talk so closely and they, you know, they look at each other like they're locked in eye contact. And then they're basically quoting love songs back and forth between each other. I mean, they're artists. They're, they're two of the greatest love song writers of the century. And they spend all day working on these songs together. And I think that's why the Lennon-McCartney bond is so fascinating is because it, it is unlike a lot of male relationships. Eric Idle talked about meeting George and feeling like he was like, it was like almost having like a relationship with a woman. It was so intense. And, and I think that Lennon McCartney is a whole other level, but I think all of the Beatles have this intensity in all configurations. You know, they all have their own intense relationship among that foursome. Is there anybody going to listen to my story? All about the girl who came to stay She's the kind of girl you want so much it makes you sorry Still you don't regret a single day Ah, girl Girl, You know, Esther Perel, do you know Esther Perel? She's like a famous therapist. She talks about the fact that friendships are love stories too. And I think in our society, you know, we kind of assume that there's love stories and then there's like friendships. And I think that great, great deep friendships can be love stories too. And with the Beatles, there is a love story there. It's platonic, you know. Can I quote one of my favorite quotes from you? Yes. Is uh, John and Paul paired off only to find themselves stuck together for life. For John, Paul was the boy who came to stay. For Paul, John was the song he couldn't make better. Song he couldn't make better. Yeah, it's so genius. Because for John, Paul was like 
girl, even though girl was maybe this dream girl, it reflects a lot of the way Paul was, you know? It's like he I, could be describing Paul, right? I always love when John is trying to explain that song and he's not admitting that he wrote it about Paul. Like, <laughs> Paul is the girl in that song. He's describing every detail of Paul's personality. Oh and my he, God. It could not be more, and he's singing very specifically about Paul and this friendship that drives him crazy. And it's, you know, it's really sweet and it's beautiful. And it feels like it's, you know, he's constantly trying to explain what girl is about. It's, you know. I know. We know who it is, who is, you know. I know. <laughs> I think with John, there is always some kind of a, you know, a longing for something from Paul. And, and you're exactly right. Paul's always trying to help John and make him feel better and be there for John. You know, he has such great love for John and wants John to be happy. It's very, Absolutely. very lovely and very, very insightful. Thank I always you wonder, so much. I always wonder too, who the song um, in my life is about, like, I love you more. I always wonder who that's about as well. It sounds like, like you're pretty sure it's about Paul. It could be, could, could be about Cynthia, could be about Julian, but I think, I think it is, you know, I think that they have this very deep, real, connection and John may not have known it either there's a lot of songs that I don't think that these guys are necessarily conscious that they're doing this but I think it ends up that way I did a whole episode um on Egg Pod about um Walls and Bridges and the coming together of Lennon McCartney in this period it was a really important period and for the two of them and here's a here's one of the quotes that I wrote down from you that's so beautiful um, you say, John announces, we thought we'd do one last number so I can get out of here and be sick. This is a number of an old estranged fiance of mine called Paul. They do, I saw her standing there, their big finale. And then there's, it's kind of ellipsis here, but you can hear John get caught up in the crowd's excitement. It's his night to shine on stage in New York for the first time in years and the last time ever. Why is he doing a Paul song? Why is he making this moment about him and Paul when all anybody wants is to cheer and shower John with love? But in the middle of the crowd, he calls Paul's name. And that is so insightful. Can you just speak to that? It's such a beautiful moment, right? And, you know, this is a little background, like, although everybody knows the story, Paul is working with Elton John and they make a bet that, you know, if, if John's Elton John song hits number one. He'll go on stage with Elton John. And he does. And, you know, Elton is so excited to be there with John. Everybody oh, yeah. is so excited to have John on stage. And it's so weird that John wants to talk about Paul <laughs> in front is. of 20,000 of his closest friends. He's this is a song by an old estranged fiance, my name Paul. And it's, it's, it's so funny that, you know, John doesn't have to do that to get, you know, to, to, to get his, 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 his applause, his attention. And, you know, and also, you know, he doesn't even have to mention Paul, like they're going to do, I saw her standing there, but, you know, the crowd at this point doesn't know who wrote yeah. which song. Yeah. So it's a really beautiful, touching moment that it's almost like he's calling on Paul for strength at that moment. It's almost like Paul is the Mother Mary who comes to him in his time of trouble. Right. And also, just the biographical detail that, that that we know that Yoko was waiting backstage and that this was where they began their reconciliation after their separation. You know, that for John, making this moment about him and Paul is, you know, it's not something the moment demands. It's certainly not something Elton demands or the crowd demands. But for him, it's almost like he's, he's calling on Paul for strength. It's, it's like Paul is the Mother Mary who comes to him in times of trouble. And yeah. It's, it's a really beautiful moment in the history of their friendship. 
It really is. I, I, I agree with you that it's, there's something about their connection, like knowing Paul is there with him because Paul was always, you know, to the right of John. But also, I do think that like this old estranged fiance of mine, they're not broken up. You know, the fact that he uses that terminology, which apparently he did a lot at that time, suggests that it's not done. I think you were the one that said this, that it's, it's not done. It's permanently potential. And at that point, we know that, you know, John is still thinking about going, going to uh, New Orleans. And, and actually, there's another situation where John is talking about his, his rock and roll album. And then he said, well, it was really interesting because, you know, I, I, I started our, he said, the last song I did was Bebop Alula. And, and he said, and that's the first song that I did when I met Paul. And that was fitting that it was a full circle. That to me suggests how intricately music and their careers and each other are tied in each other's mind. Like John doesn't need to be talking about Paul for his rock and roll album, but he does, you know, like to him, it's a, a fitting end. Like he, he happily makes another album, but it was potentially a fitting end to be ending on the song that he and Paul met uh, with. Absolutely. Is, you know? There's just that. like, there's something there that's so sweet. And yes. so thank you for your insights. And, and uh, I hope we, at some point we can talk about uh, the breakup. I would love, I would love some of your insights. Thank you so much. So great to I'll finally talk to you. A huge fan of the podcast. And, and yes, please, next time. Okay. Thanks, Rob. Take thank care. You. sad song and make it better remember to let her into your heart then you can start to make it better hey And that concludes my episode with Rob Sheffield. I have a few host notes as a follow-up to this conversation. First, I wanted to address something that Rob touched upon in this episode, which is how John Lennon originally presented the end of the Beatles as a struggle between Paul and Yoko. Now, Rob wasn't endorsing this view, quite the opposite. He was suggesting that the Get Back film challenged this take, which I agree with. It's a topic that I have covered often in the breakup series, as well as with Jonathan Skovron in our Get Back Deep Dive episode. So if you want more discussion about this topic, I would recommend those episodes. However, since Rob mentioned it, and since I can't quite let it go, I'm going to discuss it again here. So what Rob was alluding to was the original story created by John and Yoko in the breakup period, most importantly and significantly in the Lennon Remembers interview. 
It's important to note that John and Yoko were brilliant storytellers and they understood the power of PR and spin. And I think it was vitally important to both of them to present the end of the Beatles as a positive thing for John and to position Yoko as a better alternative for John. So this is how they frame things. Presenting the end of the Beatles as an epic battle between Paul and Yoko puts John in the center of the story as the prize. Yoko as the winner and savior, and Paul as the sad sack loser. It positions Paul and the Beatles as conservative and perhaps regressive, and John and Yoko as progressive. But it also removes John from the equation, positioning John as almost an innocent bystander, a genius artist who is willing to go with a more inspirational, creative person. And it makes Paul and Yoko adversaries. Now, this is wrong on so many levels. First, as Rob and I discussed, Paul was not Yoko's adversary. He was very supportive of John and Yoko, and he's the one that is defending them in Get Back. And in both major interviews that Paul gave in 1969, he went out of his way to praise John and Yoko as a couple and to support their art and activism. This doesn't mean that he didn't grumble about them privately. The situation wasn't ideal, but publicly he supported them because he wanted John to be happy. In some ways, Paul backing off to support John and Yoko was used against him in this story. This framing conflates spouses and creative partners. It assumes a level playing field, which it is not. They are not interchangeable. Further, it ignores Linda, who is a powerful force in this situation. John was much more publicly hostile towards Linda than Paul ever was towards Yoko. And most importantly, it removes John's agency and involvement in this situation, which is ridiculous because he was the one that was driving all the action. I think the most destructive thing in this framing is that it minimizes the importance of Paul to John, and nothing could be further from the truth because the importance of Lennon and McCartney is at the very heart of this issue. I think that all of this drama was John fighting. He was maneuvering to ensure he couldn't be left or taken for granted. In the breakup series, we used John's Beatles song, I'll Be Back for a Reason. It indicates how John played games. In it, he says, I thought that you would realize that if I ran away from you, that you would want me too. But I got a big surprise. This is how John operated. He wanted to be chased, to be fought for. He created drama to make this happen. All of my research and analysis leads me to conclude that the end of the Beatles was about John and Paul's battle to stay primary to each other. It was a negotiation gone awry. As I stated at the beginning of the breakup series, and I still believe this to be true, I think the breakup was a high-stakes game of chase that spun out of control. The John's endgame was never to end the Beatles or destroy Lennon and McCartney, nor was it about dominance, but rather it was an elaborate play for respect, love, appreciation, and commitment. The song Jealous Guy also gives us a peek into John's mindset, and it probably gives us a good sense of what went on in the breakup. In the song, John tells the story of becoming convinced that he was losing someone's love, and it terrified him so much that he went all out trying to catch their eye, and in his panic, he ended up hurting them, which sounds familiar. Now, Paula said that John told him this song was about him, but 
Whether it was or not, it shows again how John operates. This is how John fights to keep people's attention. I think that John was doing everything to remain unforgettable, unleavable to Paul. This was part of Lennon and McCartney's dance. They fought to ensure that the other couldn't take their eyes off the other, which frankly is why we can't take our eyes off them. Linda and Yoko are a part of this story, but they are simply supporting players in the end of the Beatles. The main players are John and Paul. I think like in Jealous Guy, John wanted Paul to fight for him, to reassure him. And based on things that Paula said in the 80s, I think to some extent Paul understood this. In 1985, Paul told the German TV show Exclusive that when John and Yoko got together, he backed off. And he said that he might have been able to do something if he was a girl, but he wasn't, so he couldn't. Which, to me, <laughs> suggests that he sort of understands that the fight is an emotional one, not a creative one. If we look at John and Paul in Get Back, we can see their creative chemistry is still there. They're still locked in. And so Paul saying that he needs to be a girl to fight in this situation suggests that he reads this battle as a romantic, emotional one. And so he backed off. And I think that's the last thing that John wanted because he just wanted confirmation of his importance to Paul. And unfortunately, the more Paul backed off to be nice, to let John go, the more John provoked and escalated for reassurance. And then things spiraled. Wires got crossed, misunderstandings heightened, until finally Paul mistook John's move and walked away, making their split real. I don't think this is what John wanted, and I don't think this is what Paul wanted. In the end, Paul and John just devastated each other. Paul went to his farm with his wife. John checked into therapy with his wife. Then they both made brilliant albums, but then, of course, within a couple of years, Paul and John were flirting with getting back together again, which really positions the breakup as a fight rather than a full break. And that's another reason that the Paul versus Yoko story really doesn't work. One didn't replace the other. Yoko didn't replace Paul and Linda didn't replace John because the John and Paul relationship continued separate from Yoko and Linda. And that's not to take away from the relationship between John and Yoko or Paul and Linda. They've had wonderful relationships. So though the band officially ended, the John and Paul relationship and connection never did. But that's another story, which I will pick up next season in a series called Aftermath, John Paul in the Infinite Game. Now, there are a couple of episodes in existence that provide great grounding for this series. Both were done with Duncan Driver. One is about instant karma. The other is about the interview John gave three days after he declared he wanted a divorce. I recommend both episodes as they are among my favorite episodes from my podcast, and I will be back with more next season. Oh, and a quick disclaimer for anyone who hasn't listened to the breakup series, I don't mean to suggest that there weren't many, many reasons for the Beatles breaking up. It's not just about Lennon and McCartney, but I think that all other issues could have been overcome if there hadn't been this one issue. So if you want to know more about that, please check out the breakup series. And if not, I will be back next season with the Aftermath series. Hey, don't make it bad Take a sad song
host note is picking up on Rob's fascination with Paul and Cynthia's relationship and our discussion about Paul driving out to visit Cynthia after her split with John. As Rob mentioned, it's a meaningful story that goes a little unnoticed or unexplored, and it shouldn't be because it gives us a lot of information. First, it indicates the depth of Paul's bond with John's family, how he internalized them as part of his family too. Of course, it wasn't all about John. He also had his own relationship with Cynthia and Julian, and I think he adored them both. This anecdote reflects also what a decent person Paul could be. It was a lovely gesture of support to his friends. I love that Paul didn't turn his back on her, and I wish she had had more people support her in this way. Certainly the other Beatles could have done this, but it does actually highlight the power dynamics of the Beatles. Paul, of course, can do what he wants, but everyone else seems to be a little afraid of defying John. This is what Cynthia wrote in her book, John, and I quote, it seemed that John had cut me off from not just him, but from the whole Beatles family. The only person who came to see me was Paul. He arrived one sunny afternoon bearing a rose saying, I'm so sorry, Sin. I don't know what's come over him. This isn't right. On the way down to see us, he had written a song for Julian. It began as Hey Jules and later became Hey Jude, which sounded better. Ironically, John thought it was about him when he first heard it. It went on to become one of the Beatles' most successful singles ever, spending nine weeks at number one in the US and two weeks in the UK." End of quote. And then she says that Paul stayed for a while discussing how John was bringing Yoko into the recording sessions. And he talked to her about his split with Jane, which Cynthia said he was really upset about. And he joked about them getting married. And then Cynthia continued, and I quote again here, and I was grateful to him for cheering me up and caring enough to come. He was the only member of the Beatles family who'd had the courage to defy John, who'd apparently made it quite clear that he expected everyone to follow his lead in cutting me off. But Paul was his own man and not afraid of John. In fact, musically and personally, the two were beginning to go in separate directions. So perhaps Paul's visit to me was also a statement to John. So not only did Paul defy John by visiting Cynthia, but he wrote a masterpiece as a result of this visit. And it was so good that John couldn't even be mad. Maybe that had more to do with the fact that John thought this masterpiece was about him. I don't necessarily think their music was going in different directions, but nevertheless, perhaps Paul was sending John a message too, that he didn't necessarily approve of everything John was doing. Apparently, Paul was quite upset when John and Cynthia separated. He even said he tried to bribe them to stay together. Maybe Paul did not want to live in Weybridge with a gang, but I suspect he really liked the safety of their group, and he considered that his family. I think he probably also knew that John needed someone as an anchor to tether him, and I suspect he was quite worried about what would happen to John without that. He was probably also worried about what would happen to Cynthia and Julian as well. One thing that I noted was a little bit of pride in Cynthia's comment about the fact that Hey Jude was one of the Beatles' most successful singles ever. It was probably reassuring to her. Being exiled and excluded from the Beatles' family, there was a song out there that was a constant reminder that somebody felt empathy for them. To know that she and Julian were the inspiration for one of the Beatles' biggest hits and she was not forgotten. Anyway, it was a lovely gesture on Paul's part. I wonder if John visited Jane after she and Paul broke up. I can't imagine that happening, 
which supports Rob's point of view about how unusual Paul is as a man. My final host note picks up on John's 1974 return to the stage with Elton and the connection to Paul. As Rob said, this is such a meaningful story. I love the fact that Rob pointed out the significance of this because it is significant. In John's triumphant return to stage, he chose to play a Paul song. He chose to give Paul a shout out. I know the importance of this day is usually associated with the reconciliation of John and Yoko, and maybe that's true, but they had been fully in touch before and after this event. Nevertheless, maybe there was some magic in the air that evening, but that doesn't diminish the importance of the Paul and John story. I think attention should be paid to John's gesture on that night because it is a meaningful story about John and Paul. John chose to sing a Paul-led song from their early Beatles days, the days that were really important to them as a songwriting team. Even if Elton suggested the song, John agreed to it, and he could have sung anything, any of his big Beatles hits, any of his early songs. He certainly didn't need to put additional stress on himself by learning a new song that he hadn't sung lead on. So the fact that he did meant that he really wanted to do it. So why did he want to do it? I think there are many reasons, but this was a time when John was publicly discussing how he was open to a Beatles reunion. This was also a time when he was mentioning to various people that he was considering writing with Paul again. Of course, we don't know why he did it, but to me, it shows that Paul was on his mind and that he wanted to broadcast his connection with Paul. And I suspect he was also signaling that they had a future. When he gives him a shout out, he calls him an old estranged fiance, not an ex, simply somebody who is estranged, which means they can reconcile. Nor does he call him an ex-spouse. He uses the more romantic term fiance, as in there is a world of potential for them. And as I said, I think John rivals Paul as a romantic, and I think John was very romantic about the Lennon-McCartney partnership and about the Beatles as a whole. I loved Rob's point that John was calling out to Paul and singing Paul's song was an invocation uh, in the way that Mother Mary was to Paul, and I think it was. As Rob said, the audience was fine with Elton and John, but Paul was so bound up in John's musical experience that he wanted to share it with Paul. And let's imagine what this meant to Paul, hearing that John was back up on stage singing I Saw Her Standing There and giving a shout out to him. When John was in center stage, he was making it about Paul as well, which is the way it always was in the Beatles. And this is what I meant at the beginning. It wasn't over or lost. John and Yoko's story continued, Paul and Linda's story continued, and John and Paul's story continued as will my host notes if I don't end it here. So I will wrap this up right now. Thanks for listening. I will be back soon with another episode, most likely a Hidden Gems episode. Thank you to Rob Sheffield for his wonderful commentary and brilliant insight. I'm sorry it took so long to come out. I was just waiting for the right time.
If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving it a great rating or review or give it a shout out in social media so others can find it and so that it can continue to grow. Also, I have a Patreon account for anyone who wants to support the podcast. Although I have incredible collaborators and guests, this is a one-woman podcast owned, researched, edited, and produced by me. And so all support is hugely appreciated. Thanks again. Until next time, bye for now. Martha, my dear, though I spend my days in conversation, please remember me, Martha, my love, don't forget me, Martha, my dear. W.